0: All right, well, like we say every Sunday, let's grab our Bibles, turn to James chapter 5, James chapter 5. We're going to be looking at the first six verses this morning, so let's start in verse 1. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches are corrupted. Your garments are moth-eaten, your gold and silver are corroded, and their corrosion will be a witness against you, and will eat your flesh like fire. You have heaped up treasures in the last days. Indeed, the wages of the laborers who mow your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out, and the cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of the Sabbath. You have lived on the earth in pleasure and in luxury. You have uh, fattened your hearts as in the days of slaughter. You have condemned, you have murdered the just. And he does not resist you. Well, as you can tell, another upbeat, positive passage here in the book of James. Fascinating section. It all has to do with this. This right here. Money. But uniquely, this portion of the book of James isn't written to Christians. Most believe, and I agree with them, that James is indirectly addressing non-believers. Non-believers that are wealthy, according to this world's standards. And he's using this rebuke of the wealthy unbeliever as an indirect object lesson to the Christian in whom he is writing to. Throughout the book of James, from James chapter 1, we have various verses given to us that show us that the Christians of that time had a very difficult time with this. They coveted money. There was a... High degree of separation between the wealthy Christians in the fellowship and in the... Am I tempting you by holding this $100 bill in front of you? See, I've never had one before, so I'm, I'm just holding on to it. I'll put the temptation away before he storm the pulpit. There was a huge disparity in the early church at this time that James is writing to. There was a class of Christians that were very wealthy, and then there was a class of Christians that were very poor. And there was tension and there was uh, you know, controversy between the two groups there within the early church. And those who didn't have believed in some way that they were not receiving all that God had for them and they became envious and coveted the uh, wealth of those Christians in whom they fellowshipped with. And so James talks about the rich brother, the lowly brother, he talks about personal favoritism, and of course, he talks about asking uh, in prayer for things, not receiving them because you ask amiss. He talks about worldliness, and he talks about the various elements of personal favoritism, etc. because this contention was real, wealth was a problem. And in this warning to the wealthy, the title of today's message, he is indirectly reminding the Christians of that time that wealth is not the end-all, be-all to the Christian life. Now, it isn't wrong for a Christian to be wealthy. As long as that Christian governs the manner in which he accumulates that wealth or she accumulates that wealth... The manner in which that wealth is spent, and the attitude of the heart that governs the stewardship of the wealth that God has blessed the individual with. Today in the United States of America, we are seeing a greater and greater divide between the ultra wealthy and the ultra poor. That divide is being uh, gapped due to the fact of the reduction of the middle class in America. And it is a scary transition. It's a transition that we should all be aware of that's happening in our country. And we're going to talk about some of the misgivings that the wealthy elite in America have concerning their ideas and also their view of everyone else within the country. But here we come to chapter 5, verse 1. And in the fashion of the Old Testament, we see James addressing his readers as an Old Testament prophet would address the children of Israel in warning them of their sin. He says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. The Bible says that there is a lot to be concerned about when it comes to wealth. For example, Jesus told us very clearly in Mark 8.36, For what shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Paul the Apostle expounded on this and went as far as to say in 1 Timothy 6.10, For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. For which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and piercing themselves through with many sorrows. Money can bring problems to the Christian. Throughout the Old Testament, Israel's darkest times were not times in poverty, but they were times of prosperity where Israel interpreted their prosperity as God's approval. Due to the covenant that God made with them through Moses and the agreements or the consequences of that covenant in Deuteronomy 28. God said, if you obey me, I will bless you in such a way, which would include prosperity. He said, though, if you disobey me, these curses shall come upon you. So whenever they were in a prosperous state... They believed that God was approving of their actions, and it's often in these times that they went about and worshipped pagan gods. They went and left God. They turned their back from God, thinking, wrongly of course, that God approved of their idolatry because they still enjoyed their prosperity. Whenever God began to turn off the spigot of blessing, if I may use that term, it wasn't instantaneous. The nation didn't see that immediately. It was gradual. It was intermittent, meaning that they had stages of, you know, sustained prosperity, then they would lose some, and then again, sustained prosperity, and then they would lose some, etc. God hoping to get their attention and draw them to repentance of their sin, When we saw the fall of the Roman Empire, it wasn't overnight that it occurred. It happened over several centuries. It was a steady decline. It would decline and then plateau and then decline and then plateau. And eventually the the Roman Empire just eroded away. Any civilization that is in a state of deterioration often doesn't deteriorate overnight. It is gradually stepped And the people of Israel didn't acknowledge that gradual decline. They just believed, well, we're still prosperous, and yet, therefore, we shall, you know, continue on in the sins in which we are involved in, because apparently God approves. The New Testament tells us, though, that God not judging immediately his people is not an indication of approval, But it's an indication of his long-suffering. His long-suffering. In hopes that all come to repentance. So as James now is indirectly, directly if I may say it that way, speaking to the non-believer who is rich, he is warning them as an Old Testament prophet would warn the children of Israel in the Old Testament. He says, come now. And of course he says, do you not understand the miseries that are coming upon you? And then he goes on to say, your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. It is highly probable that the non-believers that he is speaking to are Jewish non-believers living amongst the Gentiles and amongst this new uh, body of Christians. They haven't come to saving faith in Jesus Christ, but still operating under the Old Testament law, the Old Testament covenant, they believe that God is approving of what they are doing, but based on the prosperity in which they are enjoying. But yet, he says very clearly, and using language that should be very familiar to you, he says that your riches, your wealth, are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. This is a direct correlation to something that was said in Job, Job 13, when he was considering his own personal mortality. He said in Job thirteen twenty eight, man decays like a rotting thing, like a garment that is moth-eaten. James is reminding these wealthy individuals of the temporary nature of their wealth. He is also indicting them, saying that the riches that they do possess are corrupted, most likely in the manner in which they obtained these riches. They obtained them, as we see throughout the New Testament, through exploiting the poor, taking the poor to court, suing individuals, even Christians, to gain further wealth. And then he moves on to say your gold and your silver are corroded and their corrosion will be a witness against you and will eat your flesh like a fire for you have heaped up treasure in the last day. Now this is very interesting. When we read the New Testament epistles, please Remember always that they are rooted in the teachings of Jesus. James being one of the oldest books, one of the earliest books of the New Testament, I argue that it probably was the first of the New Testament books, directly quoted Jesus in his writing. James purposely added language into his writings that would correlate perfectly with the teachings of Jesus. Remember, that was their fundamental understanding of the new uh, covenant in which they operated in. They moved from the Mosaic to the new covenant that was established in Christ, and now they needed to understand more practically how that covenant was meant to be lived out in the daily lives of Christians. And so as James writes here, we'll see in a moment that he uses language that Jesus himself used. For example, he uses this term, last days, and he associates it with the various treasures that they are accumulating. Now, this is a play on words. First, let us remember that the last days in the Bible are always referring to the days in which began with the establishment of the church there in the book of Acts, to the very last days where we're talking about the return of Jesus Christ and the eschatological events that will take place, the last day's events that will take place. One of those events is found in Revelation chapter 20. It was an event that all Christians uh, were aware of at that time. It is God holding unbelievers accountable for their actions. In Revelation chapter twenty verses eleven through fifteen, I'll put it on the screen behind me, but you probably won't be able to read it, so look at it in your Bible. Revelation chapter twenty verses eleven through fifteen, John writes when he says, "Then I saw a great white throne, and Him who sat on it, from whom whose face the earth and the heaven, uh, and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them." And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and the books were open. And another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. Now the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them and they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death in Hades was cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death, and anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Those books that John is referring to, within those books is recorded every action, thought, and word Spoken by a non-believer. Everything that they have done, publicly and in private, is contained in those books. And God will judge them according to their works. What does that mean? He will look at the content of the book under their name, and he will say, So, what are you going to do about it? And of course, there's nothing for them to do about it at that point. They are imperfect before God. They have died in their sins. And therefore, they are judged according to what they have done. These works are what James is calling treasures. This is what you're storing up for yourself in heaven. These kind of treasures. The treasures that will condemn you ultimately. That will keep you separated from God that will set you apart for all eternity. This is what you will be held accountable for. So James here is reminding all of us that though individuals in our society may appear to be getting away with things, ultimately God will hold them accountable. God will reveal open, openly before them everything that they have done. Now, For the Christian, this was meant to uh, create hope in us and the real understanding of justice. In our country today and in our world today, when we talk about the subject of justice, we often look at justice from this worldly perspective, obtaining justice here and now. Now, we are not guaranteed that in the Bible, are we? We are not guaranteed that all of us will be uh, treated fairly and justly as Christians here and throughout this world. But what God does say is that ultimately I will impose true justice, everlasting justice forever. And that was to be a great comfort and an encouragement to the Christian. Even to David in the psalm, when he was concerned about the prosperity of the wicked, he saw and he looked around and he said to himself, how is this fair? I'm living according to you, Lord, and yet I, I'm being persecuted, I'm on the run constantly and so forth. And yet the wicked continuously appear to be prospering. And then at the end of the psalm, he said, oh, but I've comforted my heart to know the end, what the end of the wicked really is. They will be held accountable. And so people may appear to be getting away with things, but ultimately, before God, they're not getting away with anything. And James is, is reminding the wicked, or the rich, I should say, the wealthy here, of that fact. You're not getting away with anything. Now notice with me, as we continue on this topic of treasures, the similarity to what Jesus said in Matthew 6, 19 through 21. Where Jesus said, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. That's interesting. Notice what James says here concerning their riches in verse 2. Your riches are corrupt. Your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded. It's the same thing. It's the same thing. This is a direct correlation founded in the teachings of Jesus, brought forward by James, reminding them of the temporary nature of all that they possess. I am amazed at what people want to be buried with. It's astonishing to me. I remember years and years ago, the individual who wanted to be buried in his customized Cadillac. I saw one article where the individual, this gentleman, wanted to be buried with all of his wealth because he didn't want his wife to get anything after he died. But you can't take it with you, can you? You can't can't use it in any beneficial way in heaven. I love that story about the man who arrives at the gates of heaven holding these gold bars. And Peter's looking at him and says, What's wrong with this guy? He's holding these gold bars. And God says, Peter, what's wrong? Why aren't you letting the guy in? He goes, Well, I'm about to, but I don't understand why he's carrying asphalt. Because the streets of, of heaven are gold. Very interesting concept. But wealthy individuals, which we'll talk about their psychological position in just a moment, in their corruption, in their mishandling of their wealth, are actually storing up for themselves treasures that will be laid out. It means, the word treasure there, it's kind of interesting in Greek, it means a word that is uh, charged to your account charged to your account. So their account has been charged with these wicked deeds. For they have swindled their laborers, indeed the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out. And cries of the reapers have reached the ears of the Lord of the Sabbath. Here again, we see that God is aware of the injustice. Now, we have to understand that in the Gentile culture, where these people occupied, the wealthy had access to all of the privileges of that society, and the poor, well, they pretty much were neglected of all of the legal privileges, medical privileges, etc. And so when they were taken to court, they never had the ability to defend themselves, For example, they could be swindled by their owner and have no recourse to take that law or that charge to someone and have it, you know, rectified, enforced, etc. And so these individuals appeal to God. And James is saying, God has heard you, God has seen it, and God will hold them accountable. Verse 5. You have lived on the earth in pleasure. And in luxury. You have fattened your hearts as in the day of slaughter. You have condemned, you have murdered the just, and he does not resist you. Today we see, as we see all throughout history, (coughs) individuals who are wealthy, extremely wealthy. We would call them the 1% of our society. We see, excuse me, talk amongst yourself for just a second. We see that they believe that they have a degree of sovereignty that other people do not have. We have seen wealthy individuals believe that they are capable of implementing a moral standard for the rest of society. We see wealthy individuals also embark on endeavors that are outside of their wheelhouse of knowledge. Like a computer individual talking about vaccines, right? We see that today our society is being classified by the elites and everyone else, aren't we? We're hearing this language used more and more in writings, and in newscasts, etc., we are seeing, and COVID really has uh, has exasperated this a class system again in America. There were those who were able to work from home during COVID, but those individuals that they said, "Well, just have your groceries delivered, just have your you know food delivered, just have this or that done delivered, and you can stay in your homes and be safe." What happened to the delivery guy, right? What happened to the people who were stocking the shelves at the grocery stores? Some were called essential, some were called non-essential. And we see this changing in our country like never before. But one of the things, the aspect of the psyche of many wealthy today is that they believe that their wealth has Uh, been either accumulated acquired or that for some way somehow they're more intelligent than everybody else and that gives them the authority to rule everybody else you know one of the fascinating things that we see happening in Washington today is that we have politicians who many of them have never worked a real job they've been in politics their whole life they spend money as if it wasn't theirs. That's funny, because it's ours. We are, we are making monetary decisions today that don't make sense. Our, you know, but again to them, it does make sense. They want to do something, they find a theory such as modern monetary theory, and they apply that theory, and then they can spend like, you know, like money was water. Five trillion dollars printed in the last two years. Today, we are reaping the consequences of that because economics 101 tells us you flood a market with currency, you get inflation. Things are changing. And there are many who believe that their wealth entitles them to rule and to govern everyone else. Now, this isn't new in history. This is exactly what our founding fathers wanted to get out from under when they established the United States of America. Because that's what was happening in England and in other places around the world. But wealth can be very misleading. It can indicate that we are superior to others in our own minds. But Jesus had nothing, correct? He had nowhere to lay his head. He had no material uh, possessions at the end of his life, and he was superior to everyone. Wealth is not an indication of superiority. We have to see that. It also isn't an indication that they are necessarily smarter than everyone else. Many of the wealthy individuals here in America inherited their wealth from their parents. Like our governor here in Illinois. Illinois. But wealth does give individuals a degree of sovereignty. When I say that, I'm saying that they have a degree of control that others who do not have wealth may not have. And many believe that this wealth that they possess gives them an idea that first and foremost, they don't need God in most cases. But that they are some some way, somehow better than everyone else. One pastor said it this way concerning what Paul said that the love of money leads to, uh, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Now, I don't think I have to make a very persuasive argument to substantiate that verse, but one of the reasons for the love of that money is the independence and the sovereign state that these individuals believe that they have, even an independence from God. And today, like then, some may believe that they are being blessed by God and therefore can do or say anything that they see fit. But I want to bring you back to Jesus. And one of the accounts that we must look at, and we're going to look at three or four accounts, I want to show you some things for you to think about, to consider yourself personally. And the first one that we find is in Luke 18, verses 18 through 27. So grab your Bibles, turn to Luke 18, 18 through 27, and this indicates the mindset in which I've been describing It is one of the most fascinating interactions between Jesus and an individual here on this earth. It is also fascinating to see how the disciples responded to this interaction. And it's fascinating to see what Jesus said concerning this individual. So we begin in verse 18 of Luke uh, 18. Now a certain ruler asked him saying, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? The implication there in that question is that he is saying, Jesus, what can I do to guarantee eternal life? When he uses the word inheritance, he's talking about a relationship with a father. He's talking about an entitlement Uh, for, for that inheritance from the Father. So he's using this language specifically to indicate, what may I do to guarantee myself eternal life? So Jesus said to him, first of all, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. Jesus is asking the question, do you believe I'm God? Now, you know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, Honor your father and mother, and he said, "All these things I have kept from my youth." Well, I am not sure about that, but he believed he did. So when Jesus heard these things, he said, "You still lack one thing. Sell all that you have, and distribute to the uh, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasures in heaven. And come and follow me." Now he is saying, he's getting to the heart of the issue, it is the wealth of this man that is prohibiting him from fully following Jesus Christ. That's really what Jesus is saying here. It's your wealth that is keeping you from following me. But when he, that is this young man, heard this, he became very sorrowful, for he was very rich. And when Jesus saw that he had become sorrowful, he said, how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. We need to chew on that. He's not saying it's impossible, but he's saying that these riches have become the material possession, the focal point of the identity of the individual the security and the sovereignty of the person who holds this wealth. This man was very rich. He was a ruler of that time, so he was influential. He was a position not only of prosperity, but also of privilege and, and, um, and so forth and position. But Jesus begs the question, how hard it is. It's a statement, actually, for those who have riches to enter into the kingdom of God. That should be a red flag to you and I. Let us understand that wealth is keeping people out of the kingdom of God. Wealth is not prohibiting in and of itself. Wealth is immaterial. It's the love of that wealth that is the problem. And as we'll see in a minute, if you love one you automatically will hate the other he goes on to say for it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven and now here's the disciples reaction and those who heard it said those were the disciples clearly from earlier in the chapter that's who he was speaking with who then can be saved and this is the question It appeared that this rich young ruler was truly favored of God because of his position of prominence, privilege, prosperity. It was automatically assumed that he was in perfect favor with God based on the riches in which he had acquired. What was a natural, uh, natural, national blessing in Deuteronomy chapter 28, by the time Jesus walked, it had been applied to individuals. Showing if individuals were right with God or not. If they were uh, poor, if they were born with some type of infirmity. Immediately, the question was, did they sin or did one of their fathers sin? Immediately, it was assumed, right? But immediately, it would be assumed that this rich young ruler, based on Deuteronomy 28, oh, he was blessed by God. And now the disciples are saying, well, my goodness, if he can't be saved, then who can? That's what they're saying here. This was permeated in the mindset of these early Jewish people. And then he said, but he said, the things which are impossible with men are possible with God. Again, everything was predicated not on the abandonment of wealth, but truly on who he said Jesus was. Why do you call me good? there is only one good, and that is God. But Jesus later on went to say, in Matthew six twenty four, I should say, earlier, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Mammon can mean individual money, or it can also represent collective wealth. You can't serve both. You're going to love one and hate the other. And this is the divide in the hearts of the wealthy that keep them from God. Now, I also want to take a look at the two verses that we started with this morning. And the first of those two are found in 1 Timothy 6, 6-10. All of us are familiar with verse 10. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. But if you back up to verse 6, Paul tells us how we can avoid that. In verse 6, he says, Now godliness with contentment is great gain living as god has asked us to live which would include the stewardship of our finances okay today we are talking about the heart issue towards wealth but there's also practical knowledge given from genesis to revelation in our handling of wealth eliminating debt living within our means, seeing ourselves as stewards of everything that God has given us. If we live in godliness accompanied with contentment. Now, we need to understand that contentment is a choice. It's a choice we make. Now, there are many in America that would automatically state that contentment is, is the same as complacency and apathy meaning you're just complacent you don't want to better yourself you don't want to better your living conditions and so forth but this contentment allows you to govern what god has given you and it also helps you avoid the temptation of greed and covetousness which is permeated in the the existence of our society you know we make up that you know keeping up with the joneses and today in 2022 it's keeping up with the jetsons we always have to get more so many in america unfortunately identify themselves and they show who they are by what they possess the car that they drive, the zip code that they they live in, the uh, vacations that they take, etc. And in it all, it is very shallow and it has no indication of who you truly are in Christ. Now Paul goes on to say, and he actually defines this commit, uh, commit, uh, contentment for us when he says in verse 7, for we brought nothing into this world and certainly we can carry nothing out. Now here it is, verse 8. Having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. Whoa. Right? So many Christians are working so hard at maintaining their quality of living that often it distracts them from serving God, living for Him, giving their life wholly over to Him because they believe a quality of life is necessary for happiness and contentment, when in actuality it may be deterring from just those things that they so desire. But those who desire to be rich, listen to this, fall into a temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. Then he says... For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, for which we, some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. How would we say that today? They've complicated their life to the point that they don't even enjoy life anymore. But then there's also Mark eight thirty-four through 38. Again, we are all familiar with the famous verse. In verse 36, for what will it uh, profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? An incredibly powerful, impactful, uh, I (laughs) I forgot the word, Uh, incredibly uh, important verse. Profound, that's the word. Notice in verse 34, though, When he, that is Jesus, had called people to himself with his disciples also, he said to them, notice this, whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. Another profound verse. For he says, whoever desires to save his life will lose it. For whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Then he says, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this, notice the language, adulterous, James 4, 4, and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in glory of his Father with his holy angels we often disconnect the two verses that are prominent in this statement verse 34 and verse 36 the desire to follow christ will require a denying of self taking up the cross and following after him and it should be considered and contemplated by this statement for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul You may say, well, following Christ, denying myself, that may may mean that I lose out on all the worldly blessings and the good things of this world. Not necessarily. But if you make it your heart's passion to seek after those things, and you choose to follow after those things and the things of this world, What then, Jesus is asking, will you exchange for your own soul? What is worth it out there to obtain that you would be willing to give up your eternal soul for? A warning to the wealthy. We need to be very careful that the wealth that God has blessed us with, and I'm going to say this, I see all of you as wealthy. And I'm not talking about simply the spiritual blessings that we've inherited in Christ Jesus that are found in heavenly places. That would make us wealthy in and of itself. But I don't think there's one person in this room who doesn't have hot and cold running water in their home. Do any of you, when you have to use the restroom of the bathroom of your home, have to go out into the back to an outhouse? Do you have heat and air conditioning? We have to once again remember that we are just one, you know, social uh, uh, community in an entire world. I see us as all very wealthy individuals. So how how do we govern that wealth properly? Well, first and foremost, we need to see ourselves as stewards. God has blessed me with everything that I have. Everything I have is His, and He therefore can do with it whatever He pleases. Every material possession that we have, I see as God giving to us to be used for His glory. Number two, we need to be generous. Generous people. We need to be willing to see a need and to give to that need. We need to be generous with what God has given us. Because it's all His, right? And the last thing is that we have to understand that our Lord and Savior Himself had nothing and yet He was perfect. Now, I'm not saying that we have to abandon all to be perfect. I'm not saying for a moment that it's wrong to be wealthy. Even wealthy by the standards of our country here today. But use that wealth like you would use anything else for the glory of God. Use it. Now, realize, and you'll never hear us say this here from this church, that God needs your money. God is perfectly capable of providing for everything that is of Him. But God also enjoys a hilarious giver, a cheerful giver. And you can never outgive God. So when it comes to what we have, let us not fall into the trap of coveting those things that we do not have. Dean and I were at lunch the other day and we were talking and uh, she made a, an incredible statement that often when we are so consumed by those things that we do not have, we forget what we do have. When we become discouraged about what we don't have, we lose the joy of what we do have. And this is the pitfall, the dangers of being coveting. But as Christians, in the world in which we live, let us understand that all that matters is what we do for eternity, including what we do with our wealth.